Ken, open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 38. And uh, it's not because I don't believe that you didn't read Isaiah 38 and 39 that we're going to read them. It's just that I want you to have them fresh in your mind um, as, we, as we look at this tonight. So let's just read through this. Um, and then we'll, we'll get into it. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz. Turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the 10 steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and been reco- had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall, know, I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope. For your faithfulness, the living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, where is the sign? that I shall go up to the house of the Lord. At that time, Merodach-Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? 
Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. Wow. Yeah, let's pray. Father, as we look at this text tonight, we need you to help us understand it. We need you to help us see and discern um, the truth of this text and the meaning behind it. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would come and that you would grant me wisdom, that you give me, grant me the unction of your spirit, Father God, to, to explain, to elucidate this text, that, Father God, you would be our instructor, that you would um, grant to this your people, Father, the, the ability to understand and apply what we're going to read right now. And, um, and study right now. And, and God, I just pray that you will be glorified um, as we do it. I pray that you would make Christ to be great in our eyes. Great in our eyes. As the one who is truly your chosen servant. In great contrast to Hezekiah. Thank you for all your goodness to us. Thank you for providing your word. Thank you, Lord God, for salvation in Christ. And for the, the, the blessed gift of the Holy Spirit. May you now teach us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, beloved, the reason I wanted you to read, or the reason we actually read chapters 38 and 39 tonight, is because I want to take some time considering these chapters as a unit before we look at them sort of individually. Because together, these two chapters constitute a flashback, okay? They're a flashback to a time, approximately six months or so, before the Lord lays waste to the army of Sennacherib, like we read about, right? And so... You know, not only are these chapters out of order chronologically in Isaiah, but what we discover, if you compare it with 2 Kings chapter 20, which is a parallel passage, you'll find out that some of the events that are in in chapter 38 are placed at the end of the chapter rather than where you would expect them to be in the telling of the story, okay? However, what we need to see is that Isaiah orders these chapters for a specific and for a thematic purpose, okay? Well, what is that purpose? Well, the purpose is this. It's to show definitively that even though God delivers the nation of Judah from the grip of Sennacherib under the reign of Hezekiah, Hezekiah is decidedly not, he is definitively not the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of God's chosen servant. He's not. He's not that descendant of David. He's not that faithful and spirit-filled servant, that gift of God that will be the solution not only to Judah's sin and to Judah's misery and to Judah's calamity, but for the woes and the misery and the sins of the nations, okay? So these chapters, 38 and 39, serve as a literary bridge, really, between the first half of Isaiah's prophecy and the second, okay? Isaiah's great promises of, of a coming king, uh, of, a, of ultimate deliverance for God's people, they do not find their grand realization in Hezekiah. Rather, beginning in chapter 40, 
Isaiah is going to lay out more explicitly the way that God's promise of the, you know, the great deliverer comes to fulfillment in his chosen servant. Hezekiah can't fill that role because he's a sinful man. And as we have seen at the end of verse 30, or chapter 39, he's a very self-concerned man too. Self-concerned. Disappointingly so. So let me just give you kind of an overview and, and understand exactly everything that's going on here in Isaiah 38 and 39. Like I said, these, these, the events of these chapters takes place six months or so before God's intervention to deliver Jerusalem from Assyria's grasp. Okay, And Hezekiah has been struck by God with a terminal illness. We're not given all the details, but chapter 38 indicates that this illness is a discipline. It's some kind of judgment from the Lord. And so he prays, you know, to the Lord that he would be rescued. He does so weakly and in distress. And then Yahweh responds. He responds remarkably with a double promise. Okay, first, the Lord assures Hezekiah that he's going to recover. Okay, that's the thing that he's been praying for. Not only is he going to recover, he gets another 15 years. Okay, that's the thing he's prayed for. But then secondly, Yahweh also promises to deliver Jerusalem from Sennacherib's hands. It's a gracious promise for which Hezekiah has not prayed. Okay? So remember, this is six months before all this stuff happens. Okay? It's six months before his, you know, that great prayer that we saw where he goes up before the Lord in the, in the, in the temple and he lays out the letter from Sennacherib and all that. This is before that. Okay? This is before that. And already before that, God has promised that he's going to recover from his illness. And not only that, he's, that God is going to deliver Jerusalem from Sennacherib's hands, okay? In fact, 2 Kings 20 tells us that, that God assures Hezekiah of this fact by the provision of two signs, or a sign that's connected with two things. Follow along with me. The first sign is this, is that God's going to make the shadow of the sun to recede ten steps, Okay? Now that's, uh, um, he's going to make the sun move in this, in the sky. Okay. Now that is a mysterious cosmological phenomenon that we have no ability to explain or understand. Okay. God's just going to do it. And then second, the second thing that's going to happen is that Hezekiah having recovered from his illness on the third day will go up and worship at the house of the Lord. Okay. Now those are two pretty significant things. And you would think that such a confirmation of God's promise, right, would would have so settled and, and, and strengthened Hezekiah's faith that, man, from that point on, he would have been supremely confident in God's faithfulness. He would have been completely surrendered to the lordship of Yahweh. You would think that after that moment, he would not falter after such an amazing, sovereign display of mercy, right? You would think, all right, that's got to settle it for him, right? You'd never think he would fall after this. That's exactly what he does. It's exactly what he does. In chapter 39, his faith is tested and it's found wanting, right? Upon his recovery, like we read, here's what happened. Hezekiah is visited by messengers from Merodach Baladan. What a cool name, right? Why is it all the bad guys have the best names? Anyways, Hezekiah gets visited by Merodach Baladan, right? Now, depending on your perspective, Merodach Baladan is either a freedom fighter that's devoted to the liberation of Babylon, right, if you're a Babylonian, or if you're an Assyrian, he's a terrorist who practices guerrilla warfare, okay? I mean... Either way, Merodach Baladan is, is um, pretty effective, actually, in winning a period of independence from Assyria for about 12 years or so, beginning in 722 B.C., okay? And then in 710, Sargon, 
who is then the king of Assyria, puts Babylon back into submission. But Merodach-Baladan is always looking for an opportunity. He's always lying in wait, looking for a chance to rebel, right? And it comes in 705 when Sargon dies and Sennacherib becomes the king, okay? Well, chapter 39 describes how Merodach-Baladan goes looking for an alliance with Hezekiah, right? He sends messengers to Jerusalem with a gift, right, celebrating Hezekiah's healing, and with a letter. Now, what's in the letter, we don't know. We don't get to read it. But how Hezekiah reacts gives us some pretty significant insight. Hezekiah, in, after he receives the letter, decides to give the Babylonian envoys a grand tour of everything. The storerooms, the treasury, the arsenal, everything, right? Right, yeah, so stupid. Yeah, he is stupid, Right? But from Hezekiah's actions, it seems that what this letter was, was an offer to form an alliance with Babylon. And Hezekiah bought it, hook, line, and sinker, and he showed them what a great ally can be. Look at all the stuff I have. Look at all this great stuff. Look, all right, obviously, again, this is six months before, this is even before he pays the, the tribute to, to Sennacherib to get him to hold off and stay at Lachish and let him, you know, just leave him alone. So this is when he still got all of his stuff. And he shows him everything. Now, here's the deal. We know, keep in mind that we know from chapters 36 and 37 that God does keep his word, right? He delivers Jerusalem just like he said he would. And we also know that Hezekiah responds to that dire situation with humility, with public repentance, right? Sackcloth, with brokenness, with dependence on God. He goes, like we said, and spreads Sennacherib's letter out there and in, in, in the temple. And he offers a prayer that is really remarkable, right? It's, it's God-centered. It's God-focused. And it's a plea, not necessarily for the people, but just for God to uphold his glory and his honor, right? It's all very God-focused in contrast to this prayer that we saw in uh, chapter 38, right? That we'll talk about in a second. Chapter 39 actually gives us some insight into the reason for the earnestness of Hezekiah's prayer. It's because despite Yahweh's merciful healing and his promise of Jerusalem's deliverance, Hezekiah broke faith with God after receiving great mercy, broke faith with God and threw his lot in with Babylon in addition to Egypt for help. Now, the question, of course, is how should he have responded? Like, what should he have said? When, when the envoys come and, and they give him a gift, I don't know what that might have been, right? Use your imagination. But he give him a gift and they give him the letter. How should he have responded? Well, I think Alec Motyer captures it perfectly. He envisions how Hezekiah should have replied. Basically, he should have done this. He should have said, thank you for coming and thank Merodach Baladan for his gift and his invitation. But the fact is, I have a divine promise to lean on. It has been confirmed personally in my return to health and cosmically in the sign of the sun. I cannot turn from faith in the promises of God. Now, that's what he should have done. But he, in fact, does turn from the promises of God, despite incredible mercy. And so I, Isaiah confronts him, right? He goes to see Hezekiah. If you read it in 2 Kings, it's, it's very interesting. He goes, he, he confronts him, and 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 and. His response to Hezekiah's faithlessness is very direct, isn't it? In essence, he says, look, if you want to commit everything you have to Babylon, then okay, Babylon will get it all. Babylon will get everything. And as a result of his lack of faith, even some, I can't even imagine hearing this as a father. 
Even some of Hezekiah's sons would become eunuchs in the palace of Babylon's king. Your name and your progeny is going to get cut off. But what is most disturbing here, and we'll look more at it next week, is Hezekiah's response. Isn't it? It's not repentance. It's not terror. It's not a, what have I done moment? Like, help me, Isaiah, right? It's not that. None of that. It's rather these words and thoughts in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 39. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Think about that. The prophecy of a future enslavement to Babylon, Hezekiah regards as good. (laughs) At least he's not going to have to deal with it, right? That's the thought. Kicking the can down the road, right? It's like we do with our national debt every year. It's impossible, I think, to imagine a more self-concerned, self-consumed, and self-serving response, right? I mean, that's as disappointing as it gets, right? From your king, from your representative before God, the guy that the guy that represents God as the ruler over your over your nation. Wow, we got a good one. Not quite. So that's the overview. Let's look at the particulars tonight. We're just gonna, let's just do a walk through, through through chapter thirty-eight. Look again, starting in verse one. It says, "In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord." Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. In those days, again, six months or so, before his confrontation with Sennacherib, Hezekiah gets struck with terminal illness. He's 39 years old, okay? He's in the the flower, you would think, of his life, right? In the Old Testament, generally long life was considered to be 80 years old, right? So at 39, you're, you know, about halfway through. You're not quite there yet, but that's that's what's that's what's going on. So he's he's relatively young in his in his life, right? And this sickness, as we've seen, is is a discipline from the Lord. Here's why. It's because for everything good that Hezekiah had done, and he had done some good things. We don't want to just, you know. Ignore that. Like he tore down all the high places and the altars to the various idols, right? He, he reformed all of, of Judah's worship. For all that good stuff, right? He still acted in his political and military role as a king in a pragmatic and a faithless way. Okay? Hezekiah had constructed what a lot of people do in our day that profess to be Christians. He had constructed for himself a secular and a sacred split. This part of my life is secular. This part of my life is mine. This part of my life is to be lived according to the wisdom of the age. And this part of my life is sacred. It's given over to God. And that generally includes the amount of time that I would be in the temple offering sacrifices and singing. That's about that. Right? He created a a sacred and a, a secular split by which he lived his life. In fact... I want you to notice that's the very opposite of what we've been studying on Sundays, isn't it? I mean, that's the exact opposite to what we've looked at the last two weeks. So, Isaiah comes to see him, right? And being a prophet, Isaiah does not have a very good bedside manner, right? He doesn't. Like, I mean, he's not going to be a doctor with this. I mean, this doesn't work. You know, he, he doesn't have a bad side. He, he speaks to Hezekiah plainly and very pointedly. You're going to die. Get your house in order. God says, have a good day. Bye. Right? And he leaves. Now, now that might seem really harsh, right? 
That, that, I mean, that might seem harsh. Imagine if I came to see you in the hospital and you're recovering from yeah. something, not, not even terminal, and I said, hey, listen, you're going to die. You need to get your house in order. Love you. Bye. <laughs> right? This seems pretty harsh. In fact, it's the most loving thing that Isaiah could really say. And truly, it is. We are all of us, every one of us facing death. When? We don't know. I don't know when I'm going to die. You don't know when you're going to die. But all of us need to be ready, right? We all need to be ready and prepared to stand before God and give an account of our lives, right? So Hezekiah better get his stuff in order. As for Hezekiah, notice what he does. His response is to turn to the wall, right? I think it's, it's to say, it seems to be that he's kind of indicating to Isaiah, look, I just want to be left alone with God. And so he kind of turns against the wall and he, and he begins to pray. Now, look at those words again of his, of his prayer. Please, Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Is that a true statement? Not really, right? And if it sounds to you like, you know, Hezekiah is pleading his merits and his righteousness to God as to why he ought to be delivered, why God owes him, you know, a good one, you'd be correct. But in fairness to Hezekiah, There is a little something more to this prayer, and that little something more is found in that word remember. Remember is a, it was in Hebrew parlance, a request for mercy. So he's asking for mercy. He's kind of mixing it up with the stuff that he thinks he's done that has been good. His prayer is pretty muddled, not something really to be emulated, right? I mean, after all, pleading your good works before God and trying to make him your debtor, that doesn't work, does it? Right? But, you know, in fairness to him, he's faced with a shock. I mean, he's just probably thinking he's sick and he's going to get better. And Isaiah tells him, no, you're going to die. Right. So he prays as best as he knows. And he weeps bitterly. Right. And then pick it up in verse four. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the sun, make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the 10 steps by which it had declined. So here's the thing. 2 Kings 20 tells us that as, as, as Hezekiah is praying, Isaiah doesn't even have time to get across the middle court of the palace before God gives him a word to go back and say to Hezekiah. Okay? So he just begins to pray, and immediately Isaiah is given this word to go and, and, and speak to him, right? And, and he gives him that twin promise, which is amazing, right? Hezekiah is going to recover. He gets 15 years added to his life. I've often thought about that, though. Imagine if you were on your deathbed, and you're 39 years old, and then you find out you got 15 years left. Imagine what year 54 is going to be like, right? Like, you know when you're going to die. Well, anyways, so he finds out, he gets, he gets this, there's this promise that he's going to get, you know, 15 years added to his life, the additional promise that Jerusalem's going to be rescued and that he's going to deliver the city before Syria. But more than that, 2 Kings 20 tells us that it was actually Hezekiah who asked for the sign. Hezekiah asked for this sign. He asked for some kind of divine evidence, not only that he would recover, but that he would go up to the house on the third day and worship. 
and that God would keep his word. Like he, he, he needed some kind of proof that God would keep his word. And so Yahweh, incredibly graciously, right, gives him a choice. You, can, you know, in 2 Kings it tells us he has the option of the sun, you know, the, the shadow of the sun lengthening 10 steps or receding 10 steps. And so Hezekiah chooses the harder thing, right? He chooses the miracle of divine proportions, which God graciously gives him. Now, how that happens again without cosmic upheaval and buildings falling down and stars falling from the sky, I don't know, right? It just happens because God is sovereign over all things, right? Even time is, is God's servant, right? But what it does show us is this, and I really want to point this out. It shows us really the condition of Hezekiah's heart and his faith at this time, right? It's pretty weak. It's pretty, pretty frail. It's not very, dare I say, manly. You know, like, it shows us that his faith is so frail at this point that he needs more than God's word to stand on. More than God's word to convince him. Something more than God's word that will prove God's faithfulness to him. Ah, it's not a good look for the king, right? And significantly at this point, 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 6 tells us that from the Lord's perspective, he says, I'll do these things, the Lord says, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Which is an implicit rebuke, isn't it? To Hezekiah's appeal to his self-righteousness, right? But I don't want us to miss this. I don't want us to miss this. I don't want us to miss the faint echo here of the Lord Jesus Christ in this text. You got to squint your eyes a little bit and look, but it's there. And what I mean by that is this, right? Think about Christ's return from the grave, right? It's accomplished what? By a cosmic miracle. Like, you know, like the, the sun receding, 10 steps, right? It is accomplished on the third day, right? In the same way that it speaks of Hezekiah. And it leads to the worship and the exaltation of Almighty God. So there's a faint echo. It won't be the last. We'll see another one in just a moment. But before we move on, I want to address the elephant in the room, right? Because there is an elephant in the room right now. Isaiah, under God's direction, tells Hezekiah that he's going to die, right? So what gives? How come he doesn't die? How come Hezekiah doesn't keel over, right? What, what is the deal here? Here's where we need to have a right understanding of God's ways with the prophets, okay? Or through the prophets. We need to remember that oftentimes in the Old Testament, prophets would declare what was going to pass, what would come to pass, if nothing on the part of the recipients of the prophecy changed, okay? They would make a prophecy, and the idea was, if everything stays as it is, this is what's going to happen, right? However, prophecies many times were given to induce repentance on the part of the recipient, okay? And in this case, at least in the moment, that's what takes place, okay? So 15 years get added to Ezekiah's life. The prolonging of his life is symbolic of the continuing existence and safety of Jerusalem. And so out of this experience, right, Hezekiah composes a psalm. He composes a song, okay? And he composes a song in which he makes some promises that he doesn't keep, right? So having access to, to Hezekiah's royal papers, 
Isaiah includes this song that Hezekiah had written after he had been sick and recovered. And it really kind of opens up a window for us into, into his mind and his heart of all that's taking place, right? Look at it starting in verse 9. We see a, write, a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, or another way you can translate it is I thought. I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward, O Lord. I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. Okay? Notice the lament here. He's 39, middle of his days. He's staring death in the face and he laments that he's going to go to the grave, that he's going to go to Sheol, that he's going to go to the abode of the dead. Okay? Now, Hezekiah is not giving us a theological treatise on Sheol heal, but what he's doing is he's saying, look, I'm, I once was alive, now I'm going to be dead. And there's a very big difference between being alive and being dead. I mean, that's, that's basically what he's saying. He laments that his days of going to the house of the Lord to worship Yahweh are over. And moreover, that he's going to be cut off from worshiping at the temple with his people. He's not going to be with his generation and go up to the house of the Lord anymore. And it really grieves his heart. Like, you know, he's, he's sitting there and he's thinking, what a mess I've made of my life. And now it's coming to a quick end. And the only thing that ever gave me any pleasure, I'm not even going to get to do that anymore. Like it's over for me, right? That's what he's thinking. That's what he's expressing here. And notice what he does. He likens his life to a shepherd's tent that's been destroyed by a calamity. It's been plucked up. The idea is like plucked up by the wind and destroyed and like rolled across the desert, right? You can't catch up. He likens it, his life to a completed garment that now is finished, rolled up his life, rolled up like a, and, and cut off like a cloth from the loom, Okay? And he's not thinking, you know, my death might be in the next week or two. He's thinking my death is, you know, I got a night and a day and it's done. That's what he's thinking, okay? He sees his death as imminent, spanning a day and a night. He pictures God as this lion that is breaking his bones, that's crushing him, right? He sees himself as as God's prey, okay? And he tries to compose himself by crying out in prayer, you know, to the... To the Lord, and, and, and that's the idea really when he says there, I calmed myself until morning. The idea is this. Hezekiah realizes that God's responsible for this affliction. Well, really, he's responsible for God bringing the affliction upon him. And he, so he views his praying as being like a bird just helplessly chirping in the face of, a, of destruction, right? Or like the moaning of a dove that's lost its mate. Like, he is in a pitiful state. Right? We look at him and go, wow. Like, it, it, this is a despondent, helpless man. Right? And not only is he on his deathbed, the, the, what he's expressing here is that, that he's, he's, he's exhausted from praying. Like, he's just tired of even praying. That's the idea. Weary and, and just about to lose hope. 
So the last thing that he can say, that he cries out is in verse 14, Oh Lord, I'm oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. He's saying, I'm oppressed. I'm, I'm, I'm overcome. I'm undone. I've got no other hope than that you will be my pledge of safety. Now here's the interesting thing. That word oppressed that Hezekiah uses here most often relates to the action that a superior would take with respect to an inferior when he has examined him and then disciplines him. That word means you know, what a superior would do when his inferior displeases him. That's the idea of being oppressed here. Okay? And so again, Hezekiah understands his illness is divine inspection and consequent judgment. You know, and, and he's going to lose the balance of the years that he, that he could have you know, reasonably expected to live. And so he makes this plea, be my pledge of safety or be my surety. Right? Be my surety. That, that word's associated with who in Scripture? Lord Jesus Christ. Be my surety. It's a cry for divine assistance. For God to do what only He can do, right? That, you know, that just like a man, you know, if he finds himself in a dire situation, he's got no way to, let's say he's got this great insurmountable debt, and he's got no way to pay it, and he goes to one of his friends and he pleads with him like, I need you to stand in my place and pay this debt because I can't do it. Or I'll be shuffled. If you don't do this, I'm going to be shuffled off to jail kind of thing. It's the idea, beloved, of, you know, what we do when we appeal to Christ in faith to be our substitute and stand in our place and accomplish our salvation by interposing himself between us and Father God and paying the debt of our sin. Hezekiah's got nowhere to go. Only the Lord that has afflicted him can deliver him. And then there's a ray of light. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Suddenly God's grace breaks through the darkness, right? What shall I say? It's an expression of amazement and acknowledgement that, that God is determined determined to be gracious to Hezekiah. And because of that, that great mercy, right? Hezekiah says, I will walk slowly because of the bitterness of my soul. And really with that, that word, I will walk slowly, that phrase, it means I will walk in humility. I will walk circumspectly. I will now walk carefully because of the bitterness of the soul that I have endured of my own making and from which God has delivered me. And then, notice what he does here. Rather than saying, I will walk slowly all my days, what's he say? I will walk slowly all my years. He consecrates these 15 years, right, to the Lord. Usually you would expect to see all my days. That's the usual Hebrew expression. That's not what he uses. He consecrates these 15 years, these remaining 15 years to God. And then he confesses, Look what he says. It's, oh Lord, by these things men live. But what, what are these things? The these things there are by the word of God and by the mercy of God. By the word of God and by the mercy of God men live. And Hezekiah knows it's true of him as well. 
He can, you know, God can restore him to health and make him live by the power of his word. And then he explains what he learned from this experience. Here's what he's learned. Look at it. Verse 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. Now I want you to see this. Okay, These are the three things that in the moment Hezekiah confesses he's learned. First, Hezekiah has realized that he has tasted the bitterness of God's discipline and judgment for sin, but it's been for the sake of his spiritual good. God has afflicted him in order that he might not go astray in the future, as the psalmist says. Right? He has experienced this by God's grace. God has turned Hezekiah's affliction and God's smiting of him to good, to his wholeness, to his well-being, and to, his, to peace. That's the idea here, okay? That he has turned this to his soul's good. Second, he confesses that it's because of God's gracious and unrelenting love to him that God has delivered him from the pit of destruction, right? Which was the pit of his own making. Hezekiah knows he's earned death, but God has been merciful to him. Literally what that actually says is, you have loved my soul out of the pit. That's a pretty awesome picture, isn't it? You've loved my soul out of the pit. And then last, his sins, for which God brought him to the brink of death, have been cast away, placed behind and beyond the Lord's view, behind his back. Now Hezekiah doesn't tell us how that's so. He doesn't tell us that. But it is a picturesque description of forgiveness. His sins no longer stand between him and God because Yahweh has himself, the word is, hurled, thrown, cast. We might say chucked, right? He threw him behind his back. And then in response to this grace, look what Hezekiah says. Like, man, in the moment, Hezekiah seems like, oh, you got it, man, right? For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and we will play my music on stringed instruments, stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. What's he promise? Man, we're going to be some worshiping fools. We're going to be a worshiping group here. My family and everybody else, we're going to go up to the house of the Lord. We're going to sing my songs. We're going to praise you and exalt you and magnify you and glorify you. The dead, those that are under the wrath of God, dead in their sins, they can't praise you. They don't open your faithfulness, Lord. Right? But now, because I'm alive, the living, he thanks you as I do because I'm alive now. You know, and he, he expresses, now that he's been given this new life, he's going to bless God and worship him and express his gratitude and offer praises that a dead man can't. And he promises to teach his children and the people to do the same. He swears, really, his undying loyalty to the Lord. Anybody know who Hezekiah's son is? Yeah. Anybody know what kind of king Manasseh was? Yeah. It doesn't seem like he taught his son a whole lot. He actually makes vows here that he's going to break in chapter 39. But again, there's a faint picture here of the Lord Jesus Christ in the experience of Hezekiah. Think about it. The Lord Jesus Christ was indeed smitten and afflicted for sin, was he not? Not for his own, but for whose? 
for ours. He bore his sins in the body and the tree, not for his welfare. He bore our sins in his body and the tree, not for his welfare, right? Not for his own good, but what? For ours. His life was restored by the Father from the pit. Not a pit of his own making. But restored from the pit because of his perfect love and his pleasure in his Son. All our sins that were laid upon him have been paid in full and they have been cast away by Father God, hurled, as it were, behind his back. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our pledge of safety, right? He's our surety before God. Everything that Christ did, he did as an act of worship, of praise to the Father and for our good so that we might worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, so that we might know him and worship him all the days of our lives. Christ has done for us all that God did for Hezekiah. And he has worshipped He's given worship and praise and glory and honor to His Father. Keeping His promise to do so in a way that Hezekiah never did. As Yahweh's servant, as His chosen servant, the Lord Jesus Christ did all things well, right? And we need to see, we need to see this contrast between the Messiah and Hezekiah because it's purposeful and it's powerful. And we're going to be reading about the chosen servant here in just a few chapters. In fact, it's why the difference between Hezekiah and the the Messiah is the reason why Isaiah places verses 20 and 21 as he does. Look at them with me. Now Hezekiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Now it almost seems like if we don't know, but we obviously we know better. But it almost seems like Hezekiah gets to the end of chapter 38 and goes, oh, forgot a couple things. And he throws them in there at the end, right? Well, of course he doesn't do that. That's not what he does, right? Isaiah is emphasizing first that God has been the inf- instrument of Hezekiah's recovery, right? Through the cake of figs. Now, how, I don't know. Either the cake of figs are like, is like a medicinal poultice that God, you know, that Isaiah describes and they make and it works and it saves Hezekiah's life. Or it could just be an enacted parable like you throw the poultice on there because God said so and you're healed because God healed you, not the figs. Whatever. That's not really hugely important. Isaiah also reminds us that Hezekiah has requested this sign of his deliverance. But again, why are these verses here? Is it, you know, did, did Isaiah forget? You know, he tells us important details. What's the point? I agree with Alec Motyer. The point is that when we read that, we're supposed to stop and make a deliberate pause. We're supposed to stop and think. It's a moment for us to consider everything that we've just read. To think about this, this is what Isaiah said. This is what Hezekiah asked. And then to supply the completing thought. This is what God did. And it sets up the next chapter. How could Hezekiah fall so Easily after receiving such gifts of grace. How indeed? How could he taste the mercy of God like this? And then, as he's healed, and somebody comes and celebrates his healing by giving him a gift, 
It doesn't make him extol God and praise God and tell of all that God did, but rather it moves him to open up his treasury and his storehouse and his arsenal to the inspection of the Babylonians. How does that happen? Here's how it happens. Hezekiah didn't keep his mind stayed on God. Hezekiah didn't do the exact thing that we talked about on Sunday. He did not renew his mind by the word of God. He coasted. He's a fallible man. In fact, he's only, again, Hezekiah's only a man. He's received grace and promises of further grace, future grace. And yet he departs from the path of faith. And thereby he proves Isaiah's point. He's not the Messiah. He's not the deliverer of his people. He's not the great king we've been waiting for. Even though Sennacherib is turned back and Assyria is destroyed in the night, you know, their army is destroyed in the night, this this isn't the guy. He falters. Despite great grace, he falters yet again. Unfortunately, despite healing and a cosmic sign from God, he departs from the pathway of faith. And Isaiah places this here as a testimony to that fact. He's not the Davidic king of whom Isaiah speaks. His grand promise of a coming king and of deliverance for his people are not going to find their ultimate realization in Hezekiah. They await their ultimate fulfillment in the glorious chosen servant who will be described in these coming chapters. One who is, incidentally, not at all self-concerned and self-consumed. Which is why Isaiah 53 holds the place that it does in our hearts. Let's pray. Johnny? Dearly Father, I thank you for the grace you've shown us, the grace you've given us. God, considering how sinful we are, how wicked and opposed to you we were, all we had truly merited was eternal destruction in hell. But God, you saw fit to elect your own, to elect your own people, and God, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, to become flesh, to live a life of perfect obedience, God, to die a sacrificial death that I deserve, all of our sin, your church's sin, placed upon the head of Christ, so that we may be made right before you. God, and I thank you for it. I thank you for your salvation. And I thank you for the newness of life that it brings. God, I pray that when we repent, that it would be true. Yeah. Lord, that when we confess our abominations before you, God, I pray that we wouldn't just turn around and do the exact same thing minutes after we say amen. That's not true repentance. Lord, we are called to the holy calling. We are called to live in a way that is righteous before you in a way that is known, in a way that is honoring and pleasing. God, we're called to be holy because you are holy. Try. I pray that we would be. Give us the faith, give us the strength, give, the, give us the ability to glorify you. God, I pray that as we read your word, that we would absorb it, that it would be on our hearts, written on the tablets of our hearts. God, in the midst of temptation, it would come to the forefront of our minds, and that you would save us 
from any temptation we might lead ourselves into or any temptation that we face. God, you are faithful and you are good. And you preserve your people through everything. So, yeah. I pray that you would just keep us. Lord, I pray that you would not remove your hand from this church and you would continue to deliver faithful messages to us, Lord. Mm-hmm. Continue to be faithful to us. And I pray that as a result, we would be faithful to you. Yeah. God, we only... We love you because you love us first. Apart from you, we would be damned with no other way out. So God, I'm just thankful for everything that you have done. I pray that it would be the driving force behind all of our worship. Every single action, every single word that comes out of our mouth, every motive, Lord, would be God-glorifying, God-centered, and Christ-exalting. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.